Father, we have sung of your shepherding care of us. The song has said, perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me. And on his, gent- on his shoulder gently laid and home rejoicing, he brought me. The night is dark, but I'm not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need... His power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me and lead me through the deepest valley. This is our confidence. And this is that to which we hold. We cling to these things, Father, understanding that it is not we ourselves who are sufficient for anything and certainly not sufficient for the removal of our sin, but Christ in us is sufficient. And we hold to Him and cling to Him. And in the perverseness of this world, we cling to the only one who is a good shepherd. Might we be reminded of the goodness of his shepherding skill this morning. Might we be attracted to him. And might we be made hopeful for what he will work in the last day to bring us all safely home. Would you guide us this morning in this word And would you encourage our hearts through a passage that is filled with difficulty and the promise of coming difficulty and hardship and even judgment for your people Israel. Might we be strengthened and made hopeful by the coming shepherd who will overwhelm every false shepherd, including the ultimate false shepherd. It's to him we hold. Might we find confidence in him this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know about you, but from year to year, I face this dilemma of, should I eat this or should I not eat this? I mean, What's good for me and what's bad for me? It just constantly seems to be changing, doesn't it? I mean, should I be eating high fat or low fat? Eggs or no eggs? Carbs or no carbs? Meat, vegetarian or vegan? A few years ago, the Spartanburg Herald Journal summarized the problem this way. Quote, the Japanese eat very little fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than British and Americans. The French eat a lot of fat 
and also suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. The Japanese drink very little red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. The Italians drink excessive amounts of red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. In conclusion, eat and drink what you like. Speaking English is what kills you. I'm not a medical doctor, and I don't play one on TV, so you might consult your doctor about that first. More seriously, medical doctor William Isley has observed, quote, the medical literature contains thousands of articles which have now been corrected, disregarded, or even have been shown to be flagrantly wrong despite the presence of statistically significant probability values, end quote. In other words, it seems that no one knows what's good and bad for us to eat. Because we're created human beings with built-in weaknesses and inabilities, and because we're also fallen human beings who struggle with sinful inclinations, even struggling as redeemed believers with those sinful inclinations, it is not surprising that we make errors in judgment and errors in evaluation and errors in discernment, even about the most simplistic of things like what we're going to eat at a given meal. And this has been a problem since Genesis chapter 3 and Adam's sin. We are not immune from the problem today. And God's people Israel were not immune from the problem either. In Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet foretold of the coming of the Messiah. Remember this, chapter 9 verse 9. Even if you don't remember reading it in Zechariah, you're familiar with this verse Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that was fulfilled in Christ's day as he triumphantly entered Jerusalem on the Passion Week. You know that verse. The nation of Israel was told that Christ would come as the Messiah to redeem the people of Israel. And in spite of his coming as Messiah, they absolutely rejected him. That also was foretold in Zechariah's prophecy. Chapter 11. It tells us in verse 12. Zechariah, playing the role of the good shepherd, Jesus, says to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out my shekels of, so they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. They evaluated Christ in his coming and they rejected him as worthless. And in response to their ungodly evaluation of the shepherd king, God promised to send another shepherd to Israel. But this was no shepherd that would be a blessing to them. It was a shepherd that would come in judgment against them. 
And that's what we find at the end of Zechariah chapter 11 this morning in verses 15 to 17. We find this principle. Because Israel judged God's good shepherd as worthless, God will judge Israel with a worthless shepherd. They rendered the Messiah as inconsequential, as unimportant, as worthless, as incapable. And so God judged them with a shepherd who really was incompetent, incapable, and worthless. What we will find in this passage is that Israel would have a shepherd. If she would not have the good shepherd then she would have a worthless shepherd. It is not a matter of whether or not she could get rid of a shepherd at all, but merely determining what kind of shepherd she would have. Would Israel have a godly and good, great shepherd or a worthless shepherd? And in her rejection, she is given the worthless shepherd. And these three verses at the end of Zechariah 11 identify for us three qualities of the coming worthless shepherd of Israel. Let me read it for you. Hear God's judgment against Israel, and then let's look at it carefully. Zechariah eleven fifteen. The Lord said to me, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd, For behold, I am going to rise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. Three qualities in this passage that we find of the coming worthless shepherd of Israel. First of all, let us see the character of the worthless shepherd, the character of the worthless shepherd. As we come to this passage, you will remember in verse 4 that Zechariah was commanded by God to play the role of a shepherd. He didn't actually become a shepherd, but he was merely to exemplify the great shepherd, the good shepherd that was coming in the Messiah and picture for the people what this shepherd would look like. The nation has rejected that good shepherd. We found that in verses 12 and 13. They've evaluated the worthiness of that shepherd as nothing, as inconsequential, as unimportant. God says of them that they evaluated him with a quote-unquote magnificent price. It's meant to be satirical. It's meant to be harsh. They rejected him. And so now Zechariah is again told to take up the armament of a shepherd again. And picture another kind of shepherd, but this is a vastly different kind of shepherd. In verse 4, it's the good shepherd. Here, it is a shepherd that is coming in judgment on the nation for their rebellion. Remember, in verse 10, he 
alluded to the fact that there is coming judgment for the nation of Israel. He said, I took my staff favor, grace, mercy, and I cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. So he takes the favor that has been on Israel and said, it's broken. Now, it'll be redeemed at the end of time. But in this moment, it's broken. Similarly, verse 14, I cut in pieces the second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So Judah and Israel are supposed to come together as a united nation again at the end of time. And he said, that's broken. So there's coming judgment. And what we find in verses 15 to 17 is the outflowing of the judgment that he speaks about in verses 10 and 14. And what is this shepherd going to be like? Well, he is, notice verse 15, he is a shepherd. That word shepherd means he's a leader. That word shepherd is used in the Old Testament in a variety of different ways, but fundamentally it means that the one who is called a shepherd leads. Now, he can lead in fundamentally one of two ways. He can lead religiously or he can lead politically. And it's unclear exactly what he's talking about here. But frankly, for our purposes, it's irrelevant. This is a leader. This is the one who is to be caring for the nation of Israel in every way. And he is coming as a leader. And it is a reminder to the nation of Israel and to us that even though they reject Christ, they don't remove leadership from their lives. They will have a leader to follow. The only question is, will he be a good and godly leader or will he be an evil and worthless leader? But they will have a leader. This one is coming as a shepherd and he is coming dressed as a shepherd and accompanied by all of the shepherd tools. So he says, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So he is wearing and bringing and using equipment that is appropriate for shepherds. Now, shepherds had a bunch of different tools and instruments that they used. They would have a staff. That staff was used both for protection and and for guiding and for directing. So it would lead the sheep. It would pull the sheep out of a difficult place and it would be used to beat the enemy, beat the wolves or whatever were attacking the sheep. He also would have a sling. And the sling was used with smooth stones that he would carry with him, the smooth stones so that they would fly straight and true. And the stones would go in the sling. And again, the sling was a weapon that was used for protection. He would have a pouch. The pouch would be used to carry a number of things. Fundamentally, the stones that he would use with his, with his sling. He would also have a pipe. And the pipe was used for calling the sheep. The sheep heard the pipe and they knew, that's my shepherd. And they would go to the one who was using that pipe. Leviticus 13 even tells us that leather clothing was part of his equipment. So his leather clothing was designed to protect him from the elements and from predators. And this shepherd is coming wearing the appropriate garments for a shepherd. Except he's wearing garments particular to a foolish shepherd. Now, what kind of garments does a foolish shepherd wear? What kind of equipment does a foolish shepherd carry? 
It's really unclear from the text exactly what kind of equipment he's thinking about. But notice in the middle of the verse, the Lord said to me, take again. And I don't think that the Lord has anything different in mind here than he had in verse 4. When he says in verse 4, go shepherd my people, he's thinking gathering all the stuff that you would take as a shepherd. And I think the same thing is in mind here. Take again in the same way as in verse 4, you picked up all the shepherding instruments. Now again, take up those things. What's different is not the equipment, but how it's used. And instead of using the equipment to protect and provide and care for the sheep, the equipment by the foolish shepherd is used contrary to design. So instead of the staff protecting and guiding the sheep, it's used against the sheep to beat the sheep and to be malicious against the sheep. What is this shepherd like? Fundamentally, the text tells us he's a fool. He's foolish. What does it mean to be foolish? That word foolish or fool is used often in the Psalms and Proverbs to refer to a man who is without God. For instance, in Proverbs 1, you notice 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool is the one who resists being instructed. The fool is the one who does not care about the things of God, does not want to hear from God, does not want to follow after God. 15.5 of Proverbs, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. The fool is the one who says, I don't care about the right way to go. I don't care about the right thing to do. I have my own trajectory. I have my own pathway for life. I don't care about God. To be a fool, biblically, is to be intentionally ignorant of God. It's not that he doesn't know. It's not that he's uninformed. He has been informed and he has rejected God. He is a rebel against God. The fool is not the one who makes silly decisions. That's the way we use the word. But that's not the way the scriptures think about it. The scriptures say the fool is the one who is a sinful rebel against God. He hates God. And wants nothing to do with God. And that's this shepherd. There is nothing good in this shepherd. He is antithetic to the Lord. He hates God. And he hates God's people. And he acts as if God does not exist. He is quintessentially the person of Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart... There is no God. They're corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who who does good. That's the fool who says there's no God. The Israelites have repeatedly exchanged the shepherding care and compassion of God for this kind of shepherd. They have a rebellious leader because they also were rebellious. 
And so this is their future. It's their past. It's their history. And it is what is coming to them. Given that this shepherd is in the future, that this is a shepherd that is still coming for the nation of Israel, the question is, well, who is this foolish shepherd? A lot of commentators take this section, chapter 11, as being fulfilled in Christ and in Christ's first advent. And they see, if not all of it, almost all of this passage fulfilled in Christ's day. And there's certainly much credibility to that. And because of that, many commentators have sought to find a foolish shepherd in the time of Christ that particularly epitomized verses 15 to 17. And there's, there's a long list of people that this could be. So this has been identified, this foolish shepherd has been identified as Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa, a variety of Israel's rulers from the decline of the Maccabean period about 160 B.C. until the rejection of Christ. It has been referred to as the Roman Empire and particularly to Titus, who was the Roman general who sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70. All of those are credible, reasonable, appropriate. If I had to pick one, I'd probably pick Titus because everything else seems to be flowing. The rest of this passage seems to be flowing around that idea and the crucifixion of Christ. But in all of these prophecies, throughout this chapter, Zechariah seems to be looking beyond just the first advent of Christ. He seems to be looking to something different. And so look down at verse 17, the condemnation, where God says, Woe to the worthless shepherd. That article, the word the, is there in the Hebrew text. And it tells us that he's thinking not just of any old shepherd, but a particular shepherd who is particularly worthless, who is particularly ruthless. He is thinking about the one who is the antithesis to the Messiah. He's not just a bad shepherd. He is the antithetical Messiah. He is the anti-Christ. And I think that is who Zechariah is thinking about here. We might find a parallel passage in Daniel chapter 11. where speaking about the antichrist. Daniel writes this. Daniel 11, verse 36. Then the king, the Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. For he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show any regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, that that is, he will be a god of warfare, or excuse me, a, a king of warfare. He will honor himself as one who is a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses 
With the help of a foreign God, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and cause them to rule over the many, and he will parcel out land for a price. This is a wicked, hostile, warfaring king. The antithesis to the great king, Jesus. And that is, I think, what Zechariah has in mind here. John speaks about this same one in the Revelation chapter 13, speaking about the one who is the Antichrist, whom he calls the beast. He says, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. This is, this is a world rulership under the Antichrist. And notice from Revelation 13, and we'll pick up on this in a moment again, God is the source. That power and the authority was given to him by God. It's God's judgment. This man is God's judgment against God's people and ultimately to the nations as well. It's a reminder that God is the source of the Antichrist's brief power. And here's a warning for us. Whether you take this as the Antichrist or not, the warning serves in either case that there is a judgment coming against Israel and the world for all rebellion. You cannot rebel against God and it go unpunished. He will recompense all evil. Now, this is a particular judgment against Israel for the rejection of the Messiah. But we know from other scripture that all people will stand before God, the judge, and all people will be evaluated for whether or not they accept or reject the Messiah, whether they believe in the Messiah or turn away from the Messiah, whether they follow the Messiah or repudiate the Messiah. And if someone rejects the Messiah, it will not go well. There's a different judgment coming than the judgment that is in these verses for those who reject Christ. But there is judgment coming nonetheless. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if he is not your king, if he is not your Lord, if he is not your master, if he has not washed away your sin, if you are not following after him, it will not go well with you unless you repent and have faith in him. And you must repent. You must turn away from the sin. You must say, I hate the sin. I hate what the sin has done to me. I hate that I can do nothing for the sin myself. And I turn to the only one who can do something for my sin. That is Jesus Christ and God in heaven. And I trust him to be my savior. I trust him to be worthy of being one who is worth following. You need to apply 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
All our sin on Christ, all His righteousness on us. That's the great exchange. And that's your only hope if you're a rejecter of Christ. There's the character of the worthless shepherd, verse 15. And we know from our own lives that character produces actions. We do what we are. So what does this worthless shepherd do? What does his heart produce? Let us see, first of all, the, next of all, the conduct of the worthless shepherd, the conduct of the worthless shepherd. And notice particularly what the worthless shepherd does not do. And here in verse 16, God points out four activities that are fundamental to being a good shepherd. What does a good shepherd do? And the antithesis of the good shepherd, the anti-shepherd, the anti-Christ, will do these four things, or not do these four things. First of all, he doesn't care for the endangered. Behold, God says, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing. Those who are perishing are the ones who are lost. They've endured some calamity or distress that has put them in danger of death. That word um, perishing is the same word that's used in verses 8 and 9 for those who are annihilated. So they're facing death. They're coming into death. They're, they're coming towards death. They're facing a particular danger. And the sheep who are in a dangerous place that have been entrusted to this shepherd, the text tells us he does not care. That word care is the same word that's used in verse 3. My anger is kindled against the shepherds and I will punish the male goats for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah. That word visited is the same word care here. So think about a shepherd and think about all of the sheep that have been entrusted to him. And there's a sheep that is in there. There's a sheep that's in a dangerous place. And what does he do? He goes to him. He goes to visit that sheep and care for them and get the sheep out of that difficulty and out of that trial. And this one, this shepherd, instead of visiting the sheep, neglects the flock. He is apathetic to the needs of the flock. Jesus talks about that kind of shepherd. John chapter 12. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not an owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he is not concerned about the sheep. That's this shepherd. He doesn't care. Contrast that with the great shepherd. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 23, 3. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 23 doesn't say he visits the sheep. But to guide the sheep, he has to be with the sheep and caring for the sheep. 
even to the extent, verse 4, that he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. He's comforted because the shepherd has gone to the sheep. That's the great shepherd. That's the Messiah, King Shepherd. That's God in heaven. That is not what the Antichrist will be like. The second thing that he does not do is he doesn't seek the young. And notice what else it says. Verse 16, he does not care for the perishing or seek the scattered. That word scattered is a word that's often translated young. And it can be used to refer both to young people, young children, and young animals. It refers to those who are prone to wandering into places where there is trouble and danger. I don't know if any of you had children like that, but we had one. I'll remain, I'll let her remain nameless. But there was one, if there was a ladder in the house, she was on the top rung. If there was a knife on the floor, she was the one that had it in the electrical socket. All right? If there was trouble to be found, it was this child. Why is that? Because they're young. And they don't know any better. And it is a task of the shepherd to go after them, to seek them, to pursue them. Young sheep don't know any better. They wander off. They get themselves into trouble. And it's the shepherd's responsibility, perhaps the most basic responsibility, to keep the flock together. And that means... If there's a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand and one wanders off, where's the shepherd? He's after the one. His task is to keep the flock together. Not this one. He will not seek and pursue those who have wandered. He'll ignore his most basic responsibility. So one commentator has written, How could a shepherd turn his back on tender Defenseless lambs. How could anyone, much less a leader, charged with safeguarding the well-being of all the people, turn his back on children? What kind of national future could a leader contemplate if he willingly allowed the children, the future hope of the nation, to be lost? That's what's coming for the nation that has rejected the Messiah. Contrast that with Israel's true shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Or Isaiah 40 verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs. And note, in his arm, arm is denoting his strength, but not arms, arm, one arm. It's not stretching God's omnipotence to gather his sheep. He doesn't need all of the power and all of the authority of heaven. It's, It's a simple task. He gathers the entire flock in one arm and holds them. In his arm, he will gather the lambs carry them in his bosom and will gently lead the nursing ewes. The youngest? Oh, go to the shepherd. 
He'll take care of you. But not the Antichrist. He is incapable and unwilling. There's a third characteristic of what he doesn't do, and that is he doesn't heal the wounded. He doesn't heal the broken. The one who is broken may have suffered harm because of his own actions. He's wandered off and fallen into a ravine and broken a leg. Or maybe someone has come in, broken in, and attacked him. Maybe he's scarred by attack from a wolf and torn flesh. So it may be something that he has done himself. It may be someone that has come in to harm him. In either case, whether it's self-inflicted or other-inflicted, it is the responsibility of the shepherd to minister medicine that will heal the lamb. And this one will not do it. He's apathetic and he doesn't care. God, on the other hand, is a shepherd who heals his sheep. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will care for his sheep. Jesus says about the great shepherd, Matthew chapter 18, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one who is straying? If it, if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more over the, over the one than the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of our Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones perish. He cares for them. He heals them. Not the Antichrist. He doesn't heal the wounded. And he doesn't feed the hungry. He doesn't sustain the one standing. That word sustain is often used in the context of eating and providing food for someone who needs food. And so it's the one who is standing. He's not been harmed. He's, the picture is he's still among the flock. He's not wandered off. There's no evil that's befallen him, but he still needs to eat. And if he doesn't eat, he won't be sustained. He needs daily sustenance and daily provision. And so here, this false shepherd, the great false shepherd, doesn't feed the hungry, doesn't maintain the healthy, doesn't maintain those and minister to those who have the ordinary needs of life. But the good shepherd cares for all his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anointed my head with oil. and My cup overflows. Certainly goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, he who enters the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And what does the shepherd do? He speaks to them, verse 16, even to those who are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He calls, he draws, he feeds 
He nurtures. He cares. This shepherd in Zechariah 11 is the antithesis of God the shepherd and Jesus the great shepherd. He is antithetical in every way to what God has promised to do himself and what God has called earthly shepherds to do. But for all that he doesn't do, for the sheep that have been entrusted to him, what is even worse is what the worthless shepherd does do. Because he does do some things to the flock, and that's what is revealed in the last phrases of verse 16. He will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. First of all, he feeds on the sheep. He devours the flesh of the fat sheep. The shepherd eats and consumes something that is not legitimate for him to eat. The sheep have been entrusted to him to ca- that he care for them, that he sustain them, that he nurture them. They have not been given to him for personal consumption. But instead of feeding the sheep, he feeds on the sheep. He uses them and destroys them only to fulfill his selfish desires. He is self-serving and greedy in all of his passions. Lots of examples of false shepherds come to mind. You can think about people who've come into the church and among God's people and said, I'm going to be a shepherd. And they lead astray and they harm and they destroy and they manipulate and use to their own purposes. And certainly that could be envisioned here, but that's not the, the ultimate vision. The ultimate vision is the one who harms most greatly. The one who is the epitome of the wicked man who destroys. It is this one who is the Antichrist that is in view here. He is the one who particularly destroys. Think about, think about what Paul says about this one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This one, this Antichrist, is called the lawless one. Now, there are things that go on in our world and we say, what's happened to the law, right? What's happened to fair judgment in the courts? But by and large, the world still more or less functions capably Because there's law, right? There's order. There's structure. And you get on 377 to go home and you know there might be somebody going 60 in the 55. But there almost certainly is not going to be someone going 85 or 95. Why? Because there's law. There's order. There's structure. But there's coming a day when the one who is anti-Christ will be revealed and he will be known as lawless. There's nothing about the law in him. Everything in the law is removed. He is a law to himself 
and everything that follows from that. Now, Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that, right? Verse 8, because he says he's going to be revealed when the Spirit of God is removed by the removal of the church and the rapture. And God will slay, middle of verse 8, with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end his, his, by the appearance of his coming, this one who is lawless. But there is one coming who is anti-Christ and he will be epitomized by lawlessness and do everything that is lawless. In fact, this one is going to be so heinous that in Revelation, John doesn't call him the Antichrist. He calls him the beast. He's malicious. He tears. He destroys. He consumes. He is the wild animal in opposition to Christ. And again, this is, this is the contrast with the great shepherd who serves over his sheep and never uses the sheep for his own personal advantage, but cares for them. You know Psalm 23. You know, Mark 10:45. even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How much did he serve? By giving his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to his sheep to say, serve me, minister to me, care for me. You're here for my advantage. No, he came to serve them. And the Antichrist that is coming in judgment on the nation of Israel will come consuming and devouring everyone and everything for his own personal purposes. It gets even worse. He maims the sheep. He will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Some sheep he eats. Some sheep he consumes by eating them and others he just maims. He makes them worthless. He, he tears off their hooves. Now they're good for nothing. They can't graze. They can't get along on their own. We know he's not going to do anything to heal them, to minister to them. They can't get food on their own. And they're, they're incapable of being used for a worthy sacrifice to God. They're worthless. They're useless. Now you might understand a shepherd who's out shepherding his sheep and And he didn't bring enough yogurt with him to eat for the day. And that's what a shepherd would typically take with him. He'd put fresh milk into one of the pouches that he would carry. And then as he walks through the day, the milk gets jostled and it turns into yogurt. And that's lunch. So he didn't bring enough yogurt. And he's out longer than he anticipated. And he says, I'm really, really hungry. And he takes a sheep and he slaughters the sheep and he eats the meat to sustain himself. You can understand that. It's wrong, but you understand it. There is nothing understandable about the last thing that is noted about the Antichrist. There is no good reason for cutting off their hooves. It is absolutely senseless. Says one commentator, this evil shepherd will be notorious for the depths of his ill treatment against the flock. This is, again... The Antichrist who is opposed to Christ, who does not want to do anything to care for God's people and instead wants to destroy them. Daniel again speaks of him. End of Daniel chapter 11, verse 44. 
by rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, this Antichrist, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. That's why Jeremiah says in chapter 30, there is no day like the day of Jacob's distress for the folly of what this shepherd will do. Contrast that with the great shepherd, Isaiah 40. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is our shepherd. There are terrible days that are coming for the nation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, it is not going to get better. This world is not coming to a revival where everything is going to be a panacea of joy again until Christ comes. I don't know about you, but I hate what I see in the world. And it's not going to get better. In fact, verse 16 tells us it's going to get tremendously worse until the Antichrist comes during the tribulation. But unlike him, we have a great shepherd who will not harm. We're safe with him. How do we summarize this Antichrist? You can summarize everything that he does by the phrase at the beginning of verse 17, he leaves the flock. He has abandoned his role. The flock has been given to him so that he would care for them, nurture them, and he abandons them in every way. So it says in verse 17, he's worthless. He's careless. He's malicious. And note as well, before we leave verse 16, that this one comes from the hand of God. Verse 16, Behold, God says, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will, and then we get into that description. This Antichrist is there by God's permissive decree. It is not accidental. He is God's agent. And that's a comfort. Because as God's agent, he can only do what God permits him to do and not one thing more. Just like Satan could not do a thing against Job until God said, you have my permission to this point. So the Antichrist will have permission from God to a point and that's all. He can only operate as far as God allows. It has been said that the devil is God's devil. And this verse affirms to us that the Antichrist is God's Antichrist. He is facing 
a certain and firm end. And we see that in verse 17. Note the condemnation of the worthless shepherd. Now, I don't know about you, but there are certain things that I'm looking forward to by the grace of God to hear him say one day. We want to hear things from God like, Well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We want to hear, I'd go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you unto myself. We want to hear, Take courage. I've overcome the world. We want to hear those things. There are some things you do not want to hear God say to you. Verse 17. Woe. That's one of the things you never want to hear God say. Woe to you. That word woe is meant to call attention, but most often it is used to introduce a lament or a judgment. It's a grievous threatening, and the threat is coming from God. God saying, stop right there. I have something to deal with you about. And that is exactly what is facing this worthless shepherd Whatever he thinks he can do, God is about to put an end to it. Yahweh will not tolerate unfaithfulness. So he says, woe to the worthless shepherd. He's worthless. He is worth nothing. That word worthless is to be used synonymously with the word foolish in verse 15. Despite everything that he will do to ravage Israel in verse 16, ultimately he is weak and he is powerless. And God does two dramatic things to demonstrate that he is powerless. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. For the sword to be on his arm means that it will be rendered useless. It's not graphic. It's said in an understated way. But if you think about a sword being on an arm and making it useless, you can't help but think it's cut off. It's non-functional. And a sword will be in his right eye. That is, his eye will be cut out. He will not be able to see. He will not know. It's a reference to the fact that his intelligence is made null and void. His mind and brain are useless. And in summary, it says at the end of the verse, his arm will be totally withered, useless, powerless. His right eye will be blind. He won't see. He won't know. He's judged. His abilities are removed and he is no longer a danger to Israel. And again, other scriptures point to this being the Antichrist and his certain end. We've already seen it in Second Thessalonians. It's also coming in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. 
I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So so this Antichrist is at war not only with all of God's people, but ultimately with Christ himself. And he sees Christ coming in his second coming and he positions himself to fight against the Messiah. How's that going to work? Verse 20, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his, his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let me summarize it. Jesus wins. Christ has really overcome this world. He said that before he went to the cross because he had fulfilled everything about the law. He's overcome the world. He's overcome everything in the world. And no one will stand against him. Yes, judgment is coming on Israel. Judgment is coming on the earth. And it will be more horrible than anything we can imagine. But that judgment will end when God destroys all the wicked rulers and all the wicked people and all sin for all time. And we saw a hint of that in Jeremiah 23. And... I don't know what you have on your page, but when I turned the page during this sermon from the middle of the passage we've been looking at to the end two verses, on my Bible page that I'm looking at is Zechariah 14. It's coming. Jesus wins. What else might we learn about shepherding from this passage? Well, this passage teaches us a lot of things, not only about the Antichrist, but it also tells us that there's a better picture of better shepherds. And you can take all of those descriptions that are given for the Antichrist and what he is like and turn them around and see what a biblical shepherd is like. God's true shepherds care for the endangered. God's true shepherds seek the young and the vulnerable. God's true shepherds heal the hurting and the wounded. God's true shepherds feed the hungry and maintain the healthy. God's true shepherds do not take advantage of the sheep, their their servants. God's true shepherds do not maliciously and intentionally harm the sheep. God's true shepherds train the sheep to shepherd the sheep in this way. We work to equip the saints That's our theme for the year. We equip the saints to do this kind of godly shepherding care of one another. There's a better picture of a better shepherd as well, not just earthly shepherds, but there's a better picture of the great shepherd. Every shepherd is weak, no matter how good the shepherd is. Every shepherd is weak, but there is a great shepherd who is coming, who is eternal in the heavens. The Messiah, King of Israel. And he is the good shepherd who will care. 
this verse, these verses picture him for us as well. The great shepherd has given his life for the sheep. First Peter chapter two, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. He has given his life for his sheep to heal them. The great shepherd provides refuge and safety for all his sheep. Verse 25, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd. And he not only cares for his sheep, but he is the great guardian of all his sheep, even in the worst of times. And it will get far worse. We can be sure that if we are his He will keep us. You have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You're safe with him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. God has a worthless shepherd that will be used by God to judge his people Israel. But even more, he has a great good shepherd who will care for his people for all of eternity. You can trust him. He is good. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning of the dangers of not following you and rebelling against you and making ungodly assertions and evaluations of you. And we thank you, Father, for the reminder of what you as the great shepherd are like by looking at what the worst of shepherds is like. And as horrid as he will be, we thank you that we can rest in the one who is the great and good shepherd, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come We thank you that he has taken care of the greatest problem of mankind, our sin. And we thank you that he is coming again. And no one will be able to stand in opposition to him. He will reign. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.